change about the world around you? Uh, what would you change? Maybe you would change uh, where you live. Maybe you would change what you do for a living. Maybe it would be something physical. You'd like to be taller or shorter or slimmer or stronger. Maybe it would be something mental. You'd like to get rid of that struggle that you have. Or you'd like to be more intelligent. Or uh, because you're so intelligent, that's a burden. And you'd like to be less intelligent. Um, don't own up to that one. Uh, it's not a, you don't get any sympathy from anyone for saying things like that. Uh, maybe it's to do with an experience you've had or a skill in your life. You never learned to drive and you wish you had. You never learned to swim and you wish you had. Uh, or you, you wanted to change your career but you never did. Or you never got married but you wish you had. Or you got married and you wish you hadn't. Hopefully, hopefully not that one. Um, if you'd asked me at certain times, maybe around 2015, I would have said, my back teeth. You know, I had trouble with one or two of them around that time. I had multiple visits to the chair. You know what I mean? The chair. Uh, I lost a stone in weight simply by just going off eating. I wasn't interested in food. I mean, I lost it, but I found it again later on. Um, and there was a time I would have traded a lot. I daydreamed a lot about what if, what if teeth were self-healing? Or what if, you know, what if like you had a mouthwash? They invented a mouthwash that just put dentists out of business because your teeth just fixed them. Anyway, let's not dream. <clears throat> today, it's more about eyes. <laughs> That's my problem today. Uh, or more seriously, uh, it's likely that all of us can think of something in our lives or in our past that we would love to change. Uh, a hurt, an experience, an abuse, uh, a trial, a sin even. Maybe things done to us or things we've done to others. Heartbreak we've caused or has been caused to us. Things we've suffered maybe without an obvious cause. It's just one of those things that happens in life. You know, crooked things that we wish were made straight in the language of, of what we just read. We all have things that we would change to make our lives or our world better, uh, whether it's getting rid of the negative or increasing the positive. Um, you don't have to put your hands up. You can kind of mentally put your hands up for this, but who here is a control freak? Uh, I, I see a few, a few grins anyway. You like bringing order out of chaos. You like organizing and filing and managing timings and dates and activities and itineraries, keeping on top of things, because that makes things better, and it does. But, and some, sometimes, though, it makes you irritable and uptight. Uh, I speak from experience. Uh, I like organization and control. I like progress and improvement. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're haphazard. Maybe the whole idea of trying to be organized and ordered just seems so impossible that you swing right the other way, and you're just not interested, or at least you like to pretend. Uh, life's out of that because I, I can't understand anyone who um, deep down prefers chaos. I just don't, I can't, it's not a category in my mind. I can't, I don't understand you if that's you. Um, life's out of control in so many ways. Why, why bother? Well, this is still for you today. Uh, this is still for you to listen to. The teacher wants us, on, wants us to dwell this week, not on the topic of money that will never be enough, but transitioning into control of our lives. And he has this slightly unnerving message. Hopefully, you might have to put that on for me, Jane, on the screen. I'll see if you can find it. Anyway, the message is we can't make a perfect world. We can't make a perfect world. And here's where he begins. He picks up from last week. This is the first thing he wants us uh, to learn about our world. We want to control our lives, but we can't. We want to control our lives, but we can't. So he starts in chapter 6, verse 10, and if you look down at that, it reads like this, whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. 
So we don't get to set the terms of our lives. We don't decide what exists or what things are called or what we are. These things have been set for us by one stronger than us, uh, the Creator God, and we can't contend with Him. We can't contradict or override what He has designed. Verse 11, uh, <clears throat> verse 11, the more words, the less meaning. And how does that profit anyone? The more we argue, the more we resist God in the unchangeable facts of life and reality, the more pointless that is and doesn't gain us anything. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Oh my goodness. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? And on the one hand, our answer has to be God. I mean, God knows these things. God alone knows these things. But under the sun seems to be the teacher's phrase for life lived here and now with as little reference to God as possible. Life snatched from God and lived without him as much as we can. And in a life like that, the only answer to those questions in verse 12 is no one. No one knows. No one knows what's truly worth doing in this blip of a life. And no one knows what will come after. Either way, either answer, life is out of our control, isn't it? We want to change things in our lives. We want to make a better world, a perfect world, we think, as we think we can define it. We want to control our lives, but we can't. How do you feel about that? Uh, the control freaks among us might find that hard to swallow, feeling very uncomfortable with this whole idea. Some of the more laid back among us uh, might be thinking, ha, I told you so. There's no point. Uh, but maybe you find it uncomfortable as well because you're not really laid back. You're just so convinced that nothing can be controlled that you kind of have this why bother attitude. You're, you're, you're not an active control freak. You're a despondent control freak. Uh, we, we can't control our lives. And we have to accept this if we're going to learn anything here or if we're going to profit at all from the wisdom of the teacher and the lessons hard learned in his life. We want to control our lives uh, whether we try very hard to or just wish that we could, wish that we could change something, but we can't. We can't control and we can't even change many of those specific things. That's why they're daydreams. Uh, it's a kind of escapism. Daydreaming about this fantasy world of our own creation and control instead of dealing with the world in front of us with realism. So that's the first thing. We want to control our lives, but we can't. Now that said, there is a way to live that is better than the other way. There is a way to live that doesn't grant us full control, but that does make a better go of things in a lot of ways and will improve our lives and our world. And that way is wisdom. Wisdom. So the teacher launches into chapter 7 with a pattern a bit like the book of Proverbs, uh, laying out some proverbs of his own to describe the, the better way of life that is the way of wisdom. So, um, so for a heading for that, we want to control our lives, but we can't. Uh, however, the way of wisdom is inherently better. The way of wisdom is inherently better. So there is a better way to live. That's wisdom. So for example, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. Well, that's right, isn't it? I mean, if people walk past you in the street and they turn around to look as they catch a, a whiff of that delicious, expensive designer perfume that you always wear and that just kind of emits from you. Uh, but on the other hand, people who know you screw up their noses at the mention of your name because it's so offensive to them. Smelling great is not much of a consolation, is it? There is a better way between those two options. Be better a good name than fine perfume. But, verse 1 Better the day, well, the day of death is better than the day of birth. So this one's less obvious. Uh, better the day of death than of birth. Better the obituaries page than the birth announcement column. 
We better keep reading to try and figure this out. Verse 2, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. So better to go to a funeral than to a maternity ward. Better a funeral than a party. I, I don't know if you like parties. I'm sure most of you like parties. I, I don't really like parties. <clears throat> Not all of us like parties. Uh, but to put it this way, would you rather go to a wedding or a wake? Uh, well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? The teacher says it's better for us, though, to go to the wake, to go to the funeral. Verse 2 uh, continues, For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. So sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. So death is the destiny of every man, uh, and the living should take this to heart. So it's not that we're supposed to enjoy a funeral more than a party. It's that death is inevitable, life is serious, and if we're going to live well, if we're going to live worthwhile lives, it's better that we learn that death is coming, that life has an ending. Now, as an aside, uh, the day of death is better for a follower of Jesus because that's the beginning of uh, a life that is glorious and eternal. You know, Paul ponders living and dying in the letter of Philippians because he's in prison and he's not sure what exactly is going to happen to him uh, in the near future. On the one hand, he's thinking, well, if I live... Well, to live is Christ, uh, you know, knowing him, serving him, sharing him with others. Brilliant. But on the other hand, to die is gain. Uh, being with Christ, worshiping and serving him in sinless perfection and paradise. Actually, come to think of it, that is better, says Paul. I don't think that's really what the teacher's getting at here. Simply that anticipating our death will point us to a better, wiser, more worthwhile life. So that the coffin preaches a better sermon than the cot. At the cot, all you can say is that baby has mum's eyes and dad's nose. And then the next person comes in and says, oh, they've got it the other way around. They've got uh, dad's eyes and mum's nose. At the coffin, you can say whether a person was selfish or generous, ill-tempered or patient, honest or corrupt. A funeral reminds us to live wisely. You get two types of people at a funeral, one that listens and thinks and mulls and at some point realizes that they're going to end up the same way and that someone will get up to talk about them and who they were uh, and so goes out to live a better way. The other type of person fidgets and squirms in the pew and shifts feet at the graveside and can't wait to get to the pub afterwards so that we can start to put all this out of our minds. Verse 5, it's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Who wants to get rebuked? <laughs> uh, who wouldn't rather listen to a good sing-song? But it is better for you to take correction. It's like good medicine for the heart. Uh, all the crack, all the banter, sure, it's great. But when it comes to living wisely, all of that banter is like thorns or kindling under the cooking pot. It's all smoke and noise, but it soon burns out. If you want to cook your dinner... You need some serious wood, some chunky stuff to get that long-lasting heat. That's a better way. The way of wisdom is better. And I think verses 7 to 12 are, are probably examples of the better way of wisdom. Uh, so let's work through a few of these examples. We'll just flick through them kind of quickly. So first, uh, verse 7 is about greed. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So it's a long fall from grace for, for anyone caught taking backhanders or skimming off the top. So self-centered and short-sighted and just discontent with life. A wiser way is honesty and integrity. They're better. 
Next, verse 8, patience. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Are you the sort of person to see a job through, or do you collect projects that you've kind of half-attempted and then abandoned in a worse state than they were before you started? I've seen that approach to renovating a house. Uh, And I can tell you, if that's your approach to renovating a house, to kind of collect jobs you've half-started, it's a disaster. Patience and persistence are better. It's just a wiser life. It's inherently better. Next, verse 9, temper. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. So your team reaches the the cup final, and it's against your bitter rivals, and and the captain gets involved in this flare-up, and the red mist descends, and the red card rises, and in a moment of madness, damage is done. Uh, It's very easy to lose it with people, to to just be quickly provoked in your spirit, uh, and to flash in anger. Now, maybe you don't think so. Maybe, uh, Maybe you're good at biting your tongue. Uh, holding back. But later on, do you replay the conversation in your head? Do you, do you think about the things you wish you'd said? And then later on after that, you realize you're glad you didn't say because they're all just grenades in the relationship. Uh, and you can't, you can't undo the damage of throwing one of those verbal grenades. But the anger and the stewing afterwards didn't really help you either. Better patience and gentleness. And then there's a strange one in verse 10. I think he has a go at nostalgia. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now, come on, a bit of nostalgia. Surely that's okay, isn't it? You know, sure, call the midwife is lovely, isn't it? Or Downton Abbey, maybe that's your thing, or I I don't know. Don't get me started on Jane Austen. Actually, don't get me started. I, I don't have anything to say about Jane Austen. I don't really know it at all. Except that it's a truth universally acknowledged that things were better in the good old days. Uh, but but that is, that's escapism, isn't it? It's avoiding life here and now. It's kind of dodging a little bit of responsibility for life or denying God's activity here and now. You know, oh, things were so much better. This is just terrible. I'm glad I'm not having my children these days. Uh, and, or I'm glad I'm not growing up in, in this millennium. Well, better would be a dedication to responsibility and opportunities and Better would be to trust God's sovereignty over the things that you've seen change in your lifetime. In fact, they're all escapism, if you think about it like that. Extortion, extortion and greed is about escaping your limitations. I'm not happy with my, my situation. I want, I want to have more money. Impatience is about escaping the way things are now. I don't like it. Temper is about escaping your inability to cope with the way things are now. And nostalgia is about escaping by just taking a little mental holiday. Uh, in the fake idyllic past uh, instead of grappling with the present or looking with faith to the future. It's like the person at the funeral who just can't wait to get away to the pub where everyone's mood will hopefully lift and he can forget about death. Nostalgia. But the way of wisdom is inherently better. Verse 11, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. It's a shelter as money is a shelter. In fact, it's better though because the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. We saw last week that money can't do that. Wisdom is not as easily lost as money. Uh, and money, we said, you can't take it with you. But spiritual wisdom in this life is an investment that you can send ahead of you into the next life. Wisdom might not actually physically preserve your life here and now. It might do, why, acting wisely in a medical emergency or you know, waiting for the train to go past before you try and shoot across the the level crossing or 
disinfecting your hands in the hospital ward. Uh, wisdom can preserve your life here and now, but it definitely preserves your ongoing life that stretches into eternity because wisdom leads us to reckon now with God, to consider what God has done, verse 13. So the way of wisdom is inherently better. Do you agree with that? Uh, are you trying to walk wisely? Are you, do you have open ears to, to hear the difficult sermons that come along in your life, the lesson from the funeral, the correction from a wise friend? Or are you all about distraction and escapism? See, we want to control our lives, but we can't. Uh, the way of wisdom is inherently better. But, but, the benefit of wisdom is limited by our sin. I think that's um, really where the rest of the passage goes for the most part. And we're not going to go quite as close into the text in all of these uh, as we have been for the sake of time. But we definitely can't stop at verse 12 because it does take a bit of a turn. Uh, but not only that, if we've been around the block a few times ourselves, put some miles on the clock, we'd say, yes, wisdom is better. We'd agree with that. Uh, you know, the class clown sits down to face the same final exams as everyone else. So, he, you know, he, he'd be wise to knuckle down at some point. Um, wisdom is better. But what about those times when we've seen wisdom wobble? What about those times when wisdom wasn't much help, when it didn't really benefit, uh, when it wasn't better and the wise didn't prosper? So lest we uh, naively idolize wisdom, as if a perfect world was, was out there for the making, if we could just perfect our wisdom, the teacher also wants us to, to, to see that even wisdom has its limits in a world that's turned against its maker. So how do we see that? How do we see the limits of wisdom? Well, try verse 15. Here's a great summary of it. In this, uh, this meaningless life of mine, so this kind of elusive life, where things are not quite as they should be, I've seen both of these things. Number one, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness. And number two, a wicked man living long in his wickedness. In other words, bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. We might see a good person who can't keep up with their rent, while a wicked person, some criminal or swindling banker or whatever, is living it up in the penthouse apartment. Wisdom says, live well and it will go well. That's kind of the pattern of Proverbs. Uh, live wisely because God has woven wisdom into this world, into creation, uh, and the world around you will kind of resonate to that wisdom and, and, and reflect it back to you. You'll benefit from living wisely. Work diligently, you'll get a good return. Invest in good friendships, your friends will take care of you. Refuse sinful short-term pleasure, you will gain upright long-term reward. But Ecclesiastes says, well, yes, that's usually the case, but not always. There's no way to iron out all of these creases and make a perfect world because this world has fallen. In verses 16 to 18, the teacher says, don't be over-righteous. And I think the idea really is self-righteous, obsessed with how good you are and how much you deserve good things because when bad times come, you just destroy yourself by asking, why is this happening to me, to a good person like me? Don't be overwise. Strange thing to say, isn't it? But don't idolize wisdom so that you, you assume that all the answers are out there somewhere because when bad times come, you'll destroy yourself by asking, why has this happened at all? What even is the purpose of this? Why, why can I not figure this out? Why is wisdom not giving me this answer? 
And obviously, don't go the opposite way, over wicked or over foolish. Don't swim against wisdom. It may be limited, but it is still real and good. Verse 18, it's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Uh, Let's keep going. Look down at verse 19. I think the idea is wisdom is still good. But verse 20, wisdom is limited by sin. Now, that's sin generally, globally, and sin personally in me. You see, I'm not some innocent party who deserves for things to work out for me. Verse 21 uh, kind of shows me that. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may, may hear your servant cursing you. And you think, well, that's bad. But verse 22 goes in an unexpected direction. For you know in your heart that many times you have cursed others. So it's all very well thinking that other people are bad and I'm good. And so wisdom says I deserve good things. uh, But really, I've done a lot of what other people do, what I see them do. And so the long and the short of it, verse 23, all this I tested by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? See, the kind of wisdom that that God has, that not only understands, but also governs all things, good and bad, for his eternal and perfect purposes, for his glory and our good, that wisdom is not available to us. We are finite and we are fallen. So our wisdom, the benefit of our wisdom, is limited by our limitedness and by our sin. So verse 29, this only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. See, wisdom keeps us from all sorts of escapism, from love of money or from lack of patience or from loss of temper or indulgence in nostalgia. They're all types of escapism, of escaping the responsibilities of a wise life lived in worthwhile ways in the light of death. But, the teacher says, idolizing wisdom itself is a kind of escapism. Saying if we just think more and figure more and learn more, then eventually we'll understand all the confusing and painful stuff that we have to deal with in this life. See, we're imagining a world where the hard stuff is less hard because at least we understand it. But that understanding is not out there for us. We're not capable of it, intellectually or morally. Benefit of of wisdom is real, but it is limited. And that much is off limits. So uh, so what then? How do we live worthwhile lives in this area of wisdom? I'm slightly aware of not going on too long with this, and I'm aware it's not straightforward for us. But here's where it lands. Here's what we do with all this. Be content to trust God's sovereignty. Be content to trust in God's sovereignty. This is back in verses 13 and 14. So if you turn back to verse 13 of chapter 7, and it says, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Now, obviously, the answer to that is no one. We can't undo what God does. Only God can change things. But why does God make things crooked in the first place? Why would God frustrate us instead of just giving us everything that we think we need? Well, when we ask questions like that, we are straying close to those questions that God does not promise to answer because the answers are beyond us. He said that to Job, didn't he? You know, Job has all these tough questions for God about the horrible things that have happened in his life. And God says, do you really think you could understand even if I told you? Is, is it on you to, to understand and to organize these things? But why does God allow and ordain crooked and frustrating and painful things? Well, we don't have nothing to say. So one thing we can say is that if uh, 
he, he puts these crooked things in our lives so that we can find out if we really are trusting in Him. See, if everything in our life is just smooth, then you don't know if you're trusting in God or you're just trying to fool Him and keep your easy life. I'm kind of pretending that I'm with God, just keep things smooth. You can't tell until the crooked times come uh, and you storm out on God. That's when you realize, I was never trusting in Him. Another reason why God sends crooked stuff our way is to detach us from loving this life under the sun and teach us to love life in Christ, to detach us from loving this world and to teach us that there is a better world that He's preparing for us, to detach us from earthly contentment and foster uh, that contentment in Him. Another reason for, for this crookedness is to convict us of sin, like in verses 21 and 22. Why do I come across this crooked thing in my life where I heard people talking about me? Well, one reason is it can remind me, remind me of the times when I've done that and convict me of my sin and my need for God's grace. Verse 20, the mess of sin in our world should cause us to look for the sin in our hearts. Sometimes it's even a direct link. The, the crooked things in life are, are the consequences of our own sin. Not all the time by any means, but, uh, but we, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and others, but sometimes the consequences are still there. You know, I might be in prison for some terrible crime. I might be forgiven by God. I might be reconciled to the people I hurt. But I'm still in prison. Consequences are still there. The crooked thing is still there because of my sin. So what are we to do? Look, let's boil it down. Verse 14. When times are good, be happy. There's a nice note in the middle of all this, isn't it? <laughs> when times are good, be happy. When it's time to celebrate, do. When life is good, enjoy it. When there's a party, go to it. Dance, if that's your thing. Uh, whatever, enjoy, celebrate. When life is good, be happy. When uh, your job's going well, enjoy that. When uh, home life is great, enjoy it. It's good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. So the good day, the bad day, the good week, the bad week, the good year, the devastating year, they're both from God. He is sovereign over all of these things, and the best wisdom knows that we're not supposed to have all the answers. The best wisdom recognizes that our wisdom is limited, but at least God's wisdom is unlimited. And more than that, we can look at God and say, well, God's motives are perfect, and his execution is unstoppable, so that all that he has promised, even in the worst of times, we know that he is turning evil and suffering on their heads for our good. He promises that, doesn't he? Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. What purpose is that? Well, verse 29 says the purpose that we are made more and more like Jesus on our way to be with him in glory forever. And that's good news. We can't even understand the crooked things in the bad times, but God, he not only understands them, but he puts them to work. He harnesses them for our good. What a, what a thing to kind of blow our minds. We can't understand. We, we, we get in a very dark place about things, but, but God is not only able to understand the things that come our way, but he harnesses them for our good. And nowhere, as we finish, is that more clear than at the cross. Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, the perfect man, perfect life, godly 100% in no way deserved anything bad but who had this massive crooked thing in his life the ultimate crook the cross itself agonizing death under the wrath of God for sin that wasn't even his own and so he prays in the night before his death in Gethsemane for God to straighten out that crook Lord if there's any other way 
Let's take that other way. If we can avoid what's coming tomorrow, let's avoid it. Let's, let's take another way to the same destination. But there's no other way to pay for sin and to save his people and to bring glory to God. That crook cannot be straightened. And so he, he faces it. He faces the, the crook. He faces the cross. He trusts in his father's purpose in it. And he trusts in, his, in God's vindication, in God's timing, not before so that he avoids the difficult thing, but after raising him from the dead on the third day. It's just got to be the ultimate example of verse 8, where the end of a matter is better than its beginning. So what about that question that we started off with, the, the thing in your life or in the world that you would change to make things better? Would you still change it? Would you still make straight what God has made crooked? Or is that just escapism, a kind of daydreaming, instead of being content to trust God's sovereignty? No, we need to remember God's love for us that sent Jesus to the crooked cross. We need to trust that our Father will work everything out in his good time. And that's the lesson of these chapters. Let's pray for help, uh, not just to understand them, but also to take them to heart. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our thoughts to the cross uh, through the song that we're about to sing, we ask you to help us to remember the kind of God that you are, not only all-powerful and all-wise, but all-good, uniquely able to understand and to achieve what is truly best for us. Help us to walk step by step along that narrow, crooked path that Jesus has walked before us. Help us to be content, whatever our lot in life, the lot that you've given us, because we're content, first and foremost, in you. We ask for your help in these things. And would you turn our minds now as we sing to the cross. Amen.